Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Could there be a more perfect book published at a time when aloneness and separateness are key players in the world we've come to know today, then at the center of all beauty, solitude, and the creative life by our guest, Fenton Johnson. A Kentucky native and accomplished novelist, nonfiction writer, and essayist, Fenton has defined for the reader what some have only dreamed of, the essence of the solitary life. Living in San Francisco, teaching at the University of Arizona and Spalding University in Louisville, Fenton often visits Kentucky and writes lovingly of his affection for the bluegrass state. In this work and in novels Crossing the River, Scissors, Paper, Rock, his memoir Geography of the Heart and Keeping Faith, and more recently The Man Who Loved Birds. At the center of all beauty has been called powerful and deeply humane. It is an honor to welcome Fenton Johnson to our Think Humanities podcast. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Bill. And it's a great, it's a delight to be back um, talking with you who have done so much for letters and literature in the Commonwealth. Fenton, uh, this is an extraordinary uh, book. Um, and I hesitate uh, because I don't think anybody else, uh, and I don't think you have labeled it memoir number two, but to me it strikes uh, me as uh, a deep reflection on your life and your conclusions since Geography of the Heart. Am I too far wrong in thinking that it is um, a revisiting and a, a new look at your life? Well, um, I say to people, I think this is probably true of a lot of writers, that I'm writing one book, uh, which begins with the first word of Crossing the River and will end with the last word of whatever the last word is that I publish. Um, This book certainly follows what I have developed as what I think of as a kind of specialty in nonfiction, which is weaving together um, research that I do, uh, uh, trying to present it in a very user-friendly way for the reader. Um, So weaving together research, uh, personal narrative, memoir, and uh, sometimes commentary from other people whom I have spoken with, a kind of journalistic thread. There's less of the latter, of the last one in this book than in some previous books, but I think of that sort of braided narrative of um, enlivening memoir with research and leavening research with a personal narrative is a kind of, uh, it's, it's what I do in nonfiction. One of the, uh, the key questions which you asked early on and then you revisited, I was glad to see uh, at the, uh, toward the conclusion of uh, your work is what is the usefulness of life? And I want you to respond to that in a way that also tells uh, the reader it's the uh, it's the trite interviewer's 
a question about um, if you did get on an airplane these days, which none of us are doing, but if you did get on an airplane and sat next to somebody who asked what you do and you identify yourself as a writer and author, and they ask you to describe sort of the essence and what is at the heart of at the center of all beauty, what would be your response? Well, uh, early on, I introduced the, the statistically demonstrable fact that more and more people are choosing to live alone. And that is unquestionably true in Western developed countries. Some Western European countries uh, have more than 50% of their adult population living alone. Um, it's true of every uh, a major American city. It is increasingly true of, um, of developing nations like India, China, Brazil, particularly women when given the economic opportunity uh, and the choice to live alone are choosing to do so. And that was a question that, and, and then as it turned out, not only was I myself living alone, which I did not expect, I suppose, when I was younger, would be the case. Um, but also I began to notice that um, the writing and uh, uh, the painting, the painters I admired, the music I listened to, the writing I read, increasingly was dominated by people whom I would call solitaries. Um, that's a word that I have borrowed from Thomas Merton, the great spiritual writer, mystic monk who lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane, because the word single, which we commonly use, means not married. And I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in writing about people who choose to be alone, to live alone, whether for a short period of time or for a lifetime. What is the purpose of solitude in our lives? What what role does solitude play? And <clears throat> how can we approach it in the most uh, constructive and creative way. Um, that almost inevitably, I mean, I'm always <laughs> uh, choosing the small questions to grapple with, like what is the meaning of life? You know? <laughs> but I say in the book, you know, if, if reproduction is the only meaning of life, well, bacteria do that a lot better than we do. And, um, and you know, evidently viruses do it even better than bacteria. So there has to be something underneath of that um, that is a driving conception or purpose. And I felt, uh, uh, you know, I come to some of the classic answers that philosophy give us, gives us, one of which is service to others. Um, another interesting fact about solitaries is that statistically, people who are solitaries tend to be more involved in community service. They tend to be more involved with community activities. Um, so that was interesting to me. The book then became a kind of platform for looking at um, what is the purpose of life independent of, let's set aside the issue of reproduction, having children, having grandchildren, whatever. Why are we here and what are we doing? So the book became a means to that end. And you described uh, to us um, your method of doing the the research and the the work that it was required on these figures that you put together, which frankly I, I found um, 
really interesting. Uh, I, I think I know you well enough uh, to have thought of some of the ones that you would have uh, chosen uh, to, to uh, write about, but others surprised me. Uh, and I want you to, uh, we'll do our best to get through as many as we can. I think there are eight uh, subjects uh, that you write about. Uh, out of that eight, uh, we might run down those names very quickly. And then, uh, uh, dare I ask you your, your favorite or the one that you enjoyed researching uh, the most, if you didn't know about that person at the first time. But you use them as... Um, as sort of your your roadmap, your vehicle to uh, to go from uh, what is the usefulness of life at the very beginning to your conclusion. So tell us about these uh, eight people. Well, uh, there I, I think there are more than eight. That doesn't matter. What's really interesting, of course, is at the bottom of your question is how, why these people, um, people like... Uh, there is wildly varied, and variation was a consideration. I wanted to get a wide range of people. So there's Zora Neale Hurston, there's Paul Cezanne, the painter, there's uh, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson, who are kind of obvious, or Thoreau, who are kind of obvious choices when looking at the this question of solitude. Uh, but then there's also people like uh, the singer Nina Simone um, and her relationship with Rod McEwen, who is probably the most surprising person in the book. Rod McEwen, the poet whom everybody loved to hate in the 1960s. And it turns out that, in fact, he was kind of a hero. He's still, you know, he's, he, he has some great poems. He's not, I would say, a great poet. But nonetheless, uh, both Frank Sinatra and Nina Simone commissioned him to write the lyrics for full-length albums. Um, uh, so there were really there are more than eight, by the way. You're, you're yeah. exactly, I just can't count. A uh, Bill yeah. Cunningham is one of those that we didn't mention. Yes, Bill Cunningham, the the fashion photographer for the New York Times, who was you know what you'd have to call he lived lived a kind of um, in a, in a kind of cell on top a monk's cell on the top of Carnegie Hall and photographed the streets of New York. I would say that in choosing, I did have some standards for choosing people. I chose deliberately not to choose people who were um, who were pursuing a religious vocation or a religious calling, because I felt that that was a whole world that was unto itself. I was really interested in people who were artists, writers, musicians, whatever, who were uh, in the secular world. Uh, because that's what I am, and also because I thought that was really something that hadn't been written about much and that was relevant to um, most people. That grew out of, early on, I introduced the fact that, interestingly enough, um, my grade school Roman Catholic catechism down there in Nelson County taught us that uh, very, very remarkably for world traditions, that living in the world as a solitary person was a legitimate way of contributing to society, to God's plan, to however you want to put that. So there was an early, I don't know, teaching or role model that that might um, might be the case. Um, in terms of your question of which ones were the favorites, I would say, you know, what was the most fun was 
allowing, following a thread of research into my personal life and back out. And I'll give an example, one of the best examples, um, which is um, I, I read Nina Simone. I always admired Nina Simone, a tremendously brave woman who was operating against the worst kind of um, racial prejudice and discrimination in the 50s and 60s in, in establishing a career. And <clears throat> she um, uh, writes of, uh, in her autobiography of going to the deathbed of the great African-American playwright, Lorraine Hansberry, who was almost certainly her lover at the time. And um, she sang, Nina Simone writes of singing, um, in the evening by the moonlight. And this was a song that was very familiar to me because my parents and their neighbors and the people of the various people around New Haven would get together on my parents' back patio and they would sit around and sing until three o'clock in the morning and the way that you knew the evening was winding down, there were always certain songs that they sang and one of the songs that they sang was in the evening by the moonlight. So I thought, well, why Nina Simone must have had a reason for choosing in the evening by the moonlight to sing as the last, as a farewell song to the Lorraine Hansberry. And I started doing some research and discovered that that song and so many other of those familiar songs, Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, uh, Oh Dem Golden Slippers, were all written by a man that I might characterize as the African-American Stephen Foster, a man named Jimmy Bland, who was a solitary, who lived in the second half of the 19th century, who was received in the capitals of Europe, wrote the most popular songs in the world at the time, made no money at all because there were no royalties, and died in poverty like Foster, died in poverty and obscurity in, of, of uh, tuberculosis in Philadelphia in 1911. So this is someone who was absolutely a seminal figure in American music who is really completely forgotten. And following that thread from the singing of that song in my childhood through Nina Simone to Jimmy Bland, that's a really rewarding and, and it's really marvelous to see those elements of my life and also of some gift that I can give the reader and also a little mm, gift that maybe we can do for Jimmy Bland a um, hundred years after the fact, who has been forgotten to say, here was someone who made a major contributor to a ma major contribution to American culture whom we have undeservedly forgotten. Let's uh, pause here uh, just uh, as a matter of context um, for New readers of Fenton Johnson, tell us just briefly about your, because you've referred to it a couple of times, about your upbringing uh, in the knobs uh, in of Nelson County and your uh, kinship with the, the brothers at Gethsemane and how that really, uh, as you uh, speak to it in, in your book, how that uh, formulated your entire life, not just your early life, but, but uh, today, I'm sure, and your um, kinship with, with Thomas Merton. Just a, a, a brief uh, background on that, please. Uh, well, I grew up in New Haven, about three miles from the Abbey of Gethsemane, and uh, they were making fruitcake, as um, many of your listeners may know. And 
I needed bourbon. My father was working at the local, what we would today call small craft bourbon distillery. And he became the conduit for the bourbon to the monastery and managed to lose bottles along the way. And the monks became, he became very popular with the monks. And so we constantly had monks in my household growing up. And it's unquestionable to me that there's a direct line between that experience, my growing up with monks, my growing up with the choice of a contemplative life, not as something that was extraordinary, even though maybe it is extraordinary, but nonetheless, the monastery monastery and the monks were a, a perfectly normal feature of my childhood growing up. It wasn't until I went away to college that I realized that that was (laughs) not a common experience for most people. I say in the book that I really grew up in a, in what was I recognize now a kind of medieval landscape because at that fifties, the monks were still plowing with horses. We responded to the bells. It was very Catholic. Um, There were elaborate ceremonies, uh, processions that happened on all the, the major feast days. Uh, you know, and in certain ways, that was very hard for a gay child growing up in rural Kentucky. And on the other hand, as I've gotten older, I recognize what a privilege it was to to have experienced the last elements of that world. Um, my father was also, I am the youngest of nine children. I'm the youngest child of the oldest child of the youngest child of the oldest child. Or anybody who is a genealogist will realize that the stories that I was being told went way deep into history just because of that accident of genealogical birth. And so my father was really a 19th century man, and that was also problematic. (laughs) But nonetheless, at this point, I, I see it as a great... Um, as a, it was a tremendous thing to grow up with somebody who really was, I got a glimpse into the 19th century. Was your father a solitary or did he long at the end of his life to, to become one? Well, he said to me at one point, <clears throat> I quote him in the book saying, um, um, his mother, my grandmother, wanted him to become a monk. And he, I told him, I reported that to him because my, because the, my grandmother had said it directly to me. And he said, well, I'd have been a monk, except I can't stand religion. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was a kind of uh, monk at heart. And he grew more into that solitude. I, I, I talk a lot in the, in the book about how it's possible to be a solitaire, a solitary within a married uh, a marriage and it was a revelation of the book that um and i believe an accurate revelation that my parents were each in their ways solitaries they each had spaces that they organically carved out i don't think there was ever any conversation about this it just worked out that way my mother had a greenhouse she raised flowers it was entirely her space My father had a woodworking shop in all of the years that I knew them. I do not recall ever my mother setting foot in the woodworking shop. It was each of them had a space. 
They had um, very clear, creative uh, occupation. My father was a very serious woodworker. My mother was very serious about uh, raising flowers and uh, making beautiful, gorgeous arrangements out of them that she would give to people in the community. Um, she also founded the library in uh, New Haven. Um, so there was a lot of uh, role model there, I think, for the usefulness, necessity, richness brought about by the practice of solitude, either as an individual or within a, uh, a coupled relationship. You've always, uh, in, in a lot of your work, written, as I said, lovingly, of your uh, home place, of the, um, the, the area that you grew up in, of your big house, and, and, and you, you do return and used to, when your mother was still uh, living, and, and uh, you, you, you returned there often, and uh, you still, I think, um, not as often as, as before, but you still visit there. I thought one of the most beautiful uh, sections of the book was uh, in your uh, discovery or rediscovery and writing of, of Paul Cezanne, and the way you, uh, I would imagine if it was for the first time as an 18-year-old when you were there, um, and you compared uh, in your writing in this book uh, to uh, your growing up in the knobs and of, of, the, of the mountains um, that you observed and saw when you were, when you were uh, in Europe. So tell us a little bit about that and, and tell us about Cezanne uh, and, and how you discovered uh, that he too was a solitary. Well, I went to, um, I, I, I got a scholarship. I went to college at Stanford. Um, they had a program in France, as um, all of, I hope your listeners know, there's an organic connection between France and Kentucky. Um, but I mostly went to France because I was determined that I would not go to the Vietnam War. And so I went over there as a, as a sophomore uh, in 1972 um, <laughs> a real country boy in <laughs> Europe. Um, and it, it was a good experience, you know. Uh, uh, I didn't make as much of it as I might otherwise because I was so naive, uh, painfully, painfully naive. But um, that was good. <laughs> At any rate, that was when I first discovered Cezanne. And uh, I always responded uh, organically to his paintings. I discovered much later, well, in the research of this book, that uh, he grew up, he was a country boy. He spoke with, actually, he spoke Provençal uh, uh, as his first language and French as his second language. So he was uh, speaking a pretty rough-hewn country accent. I was made fun of mercilessly when I first went to California for the accent that I had. Um, I'm sure that's not a unique experience for people, for anybody coming from Kentucky. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and he also had, um, in his painting, he evolved to a place that I also evolved to partly through my studies of Asian cultures and Asian philosophies to um, a sense of no separation between us and the world that we live in. Um, everything is a part of the whole. Uh, one sees that in his painting. 
that his a love of nature and his love of the world that he's painting is simultaneously passionate and yet restrained. Um, the poet Rilke says of Cezanne, um, a lesser painting uh, would give us the apple and would paint an apple and say, to say, look at how beautiful this apple is. And Cezanne paints the apple so perfectly that what we say is, here is the apple. Um, there's, there's no painter between us and the experience. And that is, that is enormously difficult to do, whatever medium it is. And it's also enormously generous to do because it's the artist getting out of the way taking herself or himself out of the out of the picture, so to speak. So for all of those reasons, I gravitated him. And then I spent time in the south of France and had the uh, um, privilege both of visiting his studio on several different occasions, places where he painted, hiking in the on the Mont Saint-Victoire, which is the, the mountain that he painted over and over. So um, that also, you know, enriched uh, my um, connection to him. You um, also write um, of Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson, and, and you tell um, a wonderfully warm story about, um, uh, that I want you to repeat, about um, being in, in your kitchen, um, making a lime mousse. <laughs> and, uh, there's a certain instrument that's close by that... Uh, that takes you back to Kentucky once again. So tell us that story. Well, my parents' house uh, was actually pretty small, but it was uh, particularly memorable because my father built it. Not only did he, with the labor of his um, sons, mostly my his my two oldest brothers, um, um, but also you know everything was recycled. He he went out into the woods and. There were old decaying uh, brick uh, warehouses from small family distilleries. He hauled the bricks, out, the bricks out of the woods. And my job as a kid was to knock the mortar off the bricks. We used the bricks to build the house. Uh, everything in the house was recycled from some other place, which, of course, today would be considered very hip. And at the time was uh, answering a, a art growing out of necessity, which is where the best art grows out uh, grows out of. Anyway, um, when the house was had to be sold, it was sold. Everything was divided up. I live out in the West. Um, I don't have children. I didn't even, there were various memorabilia um, that, you know, people, various children wanted. And I thought um, the only thing that I can take is something that's really portable and yet has strong associations with me. And I was looking around the kitchen and there was this uh, butter paddle that my mother had used um, to make butter. We had a cow, they made, uh, you know, she would pat the, we'd strain the cream out and she would pat the cream into um, uh, butter and then um, put three slashes across the, across the top of the mound that she had made. And uh, I could see her, I can see her now doing that. and. Um, so I took the butter paddle. I tell that story in the context of the fact that, in case you haven't noticed, if you go to the store these days to buy implements for your kitchen, you cannot buy, it's very hard to find wooden implements. And the reason why you cannot find wooden implements, mostly these days are made out of bamboo, 
is because the wood that is favored for kitchen implements is ash. This paddle is certainly made out of ash. Um, and ash trees are disappearing because of the emerald ash borer, which is killing ash trees. So it's kind of an example of, it's a good example, I guess, of what it is that I like to do, which is this combination of, of, of memoir association and um, association with objects and incidents and people of my past, but also larger historical or environmental um, picture that gets invoked. And that leads us into your uh, your chapter on Whitman and, and Dickinson and, and why they were solitary. So uh, not enough time to go into full uh, detail. There's so much with both of their lives. But um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you discovered or if you already knew and went back and researched why they are uh, were, were happy and uh, for the most part and comfortable uh, being alone. And I want you to not to forget, we don't want to leave without you distinguishing for us the difference in being a, being a solitary and being a loner. Yeah, um, well, uh, these people all, uh, the difference is, I'll start at the end of your question, the difference is a matter of, of active choice. It's a, it's a um, I, you know, as I say in the book, I actually kind of like the word loner, but um, it's come to be, you you know, to have these terrible associations. It's, it, it says something about our, 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 um, our attitude about solitaries. I tell these anecdotes in the book I, regarding Cezanne, both Cezanne and Van Gogh, um, uh, had rocks thrown at them by the neighborhood kids because who are the, who's this crazy guy who's alone up in the, just painting all day, you know, uh, that there is a, a deep-seated prejudice there that uh, people who like solitude and choose to spend time alone must have something, you know, wrong with them in some way or another. And that was one of my, that was one of my goals in writing this book. Um, Whitman Dickinson, um, first of all, I want to say for anybody who has fear of poetry, <laughs> I really try, I really work very hard, Bill. I want you to back me up on this to make these people really accessible to anybody that anybody, you know, anybody who is a, enjoys reading uh, can read these chapters and, uh, and enjoy encountering these people. I hope that that's the Without a doubt, I mean they're they're, they're fascinating, and some, um, and I don't want to interrupt your your train of thought there, but but some you would never think of um, as a as a child of the '60s. Uh, when's the last time I thought of Rod McEwen? Uh, but back then he was it, you know. <laughs> yes, well, and you know, here's a great detail that I love uncovering this sort of thing. Rod McEwen was the he was fantastically internationally successful. He drew audiences of 15, 20,000 people at the time. He was the first artist to successfully demand that his concerts in South Africa be desegregated. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> that's why I say he was, a kind of, he was a kind of hero in his way. And it's really enjoyable to under, uncover, for example, that Whitman and um, Dickinson, to go back to the subjects at hand, um, <clears throat> both refused uh, marriage proposals from uh, people that uh, were eminently suitable uh, partners, each of uh, whom wanted, told Whitman or Dickinson, 
All they wanted was to bask in the glory of their <laughs> companionship. They just wanted to support them. And uh, both of them said no, because they were stubborn, independent, Henri, mule-headed solitaries. <laughs> and I think there's a really um, a great place, a place for that. I, I remember a, an old guy in Eastern Kentucky talking to me once about, I think he was talking about um, James Still, speaking of classic solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, I think a guy's got a right to go up there and holler and live alone by himself in a cabin if he wants to. And we've kind of misplaced and forgotten that, you know, and in a way that's the theme of the book. Well, um, Yodora Welty uh, is um, well known to a lot of writers and a lot of uh, uh, maybe people who've studied her work. And, and uh, I, I, she answered the question uh, that I asked you at the very beginning of your chapter on, on her writing, um, which she said, writing is a solitary job. And then there's a, a few more sentences. And then she concludes by saying, I think there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. Yeah. I think there is a difference between loneliness and, and solitude. So in, in writing about Eudora Welty, and I want you to tell the story about you, you met her, which, which must have, uh, at the time, I don't know how impressed you were, uh, but she used her solitary, um, her personal solitary behavior as a um, as sort of a vehicle in a lot of her stories, did she not? As sort of a uh, to to travel uh, as a solitary in in many of her works. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'll tell uh, you know, asking about how I w- impressed I was when when I, I met the Dalai Lama when I was covering his visit to the United States, and when I went back out to San Francisco, someone who was a very serious Buddhist practitioner said to me. Um, well, did you get a hit off of him? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, when he walked in the room, did you feel his presence? And I said, the only person that I can recall in my experience for whom that was true was Eudora Welty, because we I was in a big auditorium at Stanford um, that was packed with people. I don't know, probably 1,200 or more people. And when she walked in the room, there was, I was facing away from the door, but I knew immediately that she was in the room. She had a kind of regal bearing about her that was uh, unmistakable and that radiated a kind of sense of self-containment that, you know, she had created this person who had entered the room and she was pretty happy with that person. There was a great moment that's also in the book where um, that same visit um, there, she the next day spoke to a, uh, a, a class of undergraduates, an undergraduate seminar. They had a bunch of people they brought, kids, uh, students, freshmen they brought together. And I went because I wanted to see as much of her as I could while she was there. And uh, there was uh, a very young woman in the audience who put up her hand and said, um, Miss Welty, how is it possible that you, who have never mar- who have never married, write so eloquently about love? And there was this like pause when all of the like older people there were saying, "Well, you know, we know there's not any necessary connection between marriage and love," and the question seemed so naive and so personal and whatever. And there was this pause, and then she said, um, "I have known love. I have been lucky in love." 
And that was her answer to the question. And it was so, was so, um, it was so uh, apt. Um, uh, one of the revelations of the book was perceiving in her short stories <clears throat> written over, I don't know the period, but late 1930s to the mid 1950s, most of them were published. And they begin with stories about people who are pretty desperately searching for a relationship. Um, Death of a Traveling Salesman is the one that comes to mind. And then at the end, the stories in the mid-50s are about very independent-minded women who are traveling alone and who don't have much interest <laughs> in relationship. They, you know, one is fleeing her husband. She's left him without telling him. There are women who are traveling alone, which in the mid-1950s was a pretty extraordinary thing to do and which Welty herself did quite a bit of. So um, before I leave behind, I'll go back to the distinction between uh, loneliness and solitude. Um, it's really interesting. This isn't in the book, I, but I wrote an op-ed piece recently in which I explored it. The Dalai Lama had to have the concept of loneliness explained to him. Um, there is no word in French or in Italian for loneliness. I've tried to explain it in French to a French person, and they don't get what I'm talking about. And I believe that is because these are societies where um, there's, a, there's a sense that if you, that a fate deals you a raw hand for whatever reason, you lose your livelihood, you have a death that is devastating, um, you're injured the society will take care of you in some way or another. And I think you, the, the first use of the word loneliness in English is simultaneous with the Industrial Revolution in 1811. And I think it owes itself, the concept, directly to the mass uprooting of people from the countrysides and being forced to work in the factories. So um, I bother trouble to make that distinction because I think it says something to us about what we can do or should do or may do as far as healing our society in a way that heals this problem of loneliness, which is to take care of each other better than, than is currently the case in this country. Well, we begin with the question, what is uh, the usefulness of life? Uh, that is on page eight. And then you return to that same question on uh, toward the end of the book on page 206. But if you will, uh, with your copy, uh, Fenton, uh, on page 204, uh, at the bottom, um, you are concluding at that point what what you have learned from these um, 10 or, or so, um, again, I didn't accurately count how many, but um, we've talked about some of them. Um, and just read for us, if you will. What the subjects of these pages have in common, each lost the self to find the self. Thoreau lost himself in the woods surrounding Walden Pond. Cezanne lost himself to his painting and to his beloved Mont Saint-Victoire. Welty lost herself in her art, writing, and photography. Rabinda Drath Tagore, the great um, Bengali writer, uh, Rabinda, Rabinda Drath Tagore in his music, his poetry, and his students, in the many mouths of the Ganges River. Nina Simone in her music. 
Capitalism tells me I will find myself in things. I will locate myself, literally and psychologically, in and with my cell phone, when what my solitaries have taught me again and again in their different ways is that if I want to find the self, give it away again and again until there is no more left. I have come to delight not only in my solitude, but in my loneliness, its shape and texture, its undulations, how it changes from day to day, a relationship in its own right, a relationship with the self, with the imagination, with my work. There I feel a visceral connection to some deep, enduring truth that I can access only in the silence of my heart, in the silence of this room, where I write first drafts in pen and ink on the verso side of already used paper. This last consideration is so essential that, when traveling, I pack a few already used pages. Writing on already used paper provides the liberation of playtime, the composted and tilled garden of all revelation. I am daily and endlessly grateful for books, portable wisdom, Every room of my small house is papered with the color and variety of their spines. Each book evidence of its writer's hours of contemplation, labor, solitude. I write among them as a student among teachers. This is the magic of the word in print. Not that it answers questions, but that it composes an ongoing score for life, a mute chorus of voices as alive and evolving as light. Here, here. If this is not um, an upper class seminar, uh, surely you have you're teaching this, or, or will, or should be, uh, with all of the work and the research that you've already done. But I can, uh, I would just invite um, so many people to to delve into maybe some of these subjects that they have not thought of in in a long time and. Uh, uh, rediscovered uh, some poetry and music of Rod McEwen and and Nina Simone. I can just almost hear her. Definitely Nina Simone. Well, uh, I want to remind uh, people, uh, Fenton, that um, you're, you're you you came to this uh, public uh, um, outing of your book, uh, if you will, uh, at the first of March uh, when COVID nineteen just began, and I'm sure there were a number of appearances and and stops that you were going to make along the way. Uh, that's the, the, the beauty of uh, the podcast. And um, I will um, just remind people that the book is uh, available at our book uh, store partner, Joseph Beth, uh, in Lexington and Cincinnati, as well as Carmichael's in Louisville. Uh, the bookshop, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is this uh, brand new competitor to uh, Amazon, um, and uh, of course there is Amazon, but the independent book uh, sellers are the ones that really need some support during this time. And this is just a a, a beautiful, lovely work, and I'm I'm will be so glad to celebrate it with you in person uh, when you do return to Kentucky. Uh, some some final or parting words about this uh, state of the of the nation and the world we're in, and and how this. This book really might in some ways address it in a very positive way. Yeah, thank you for asking that question because I always forget to 
bring in what the book really points toward in its last chapter is a celebration of friendship uh, and how uh, important friendship is in our lives and how I think we devalue it and take it for granted. We, we see it as a decoration to our lives rather than as an essential component to our lives. And I think one of the challenges of the current, of the current pandemic is um, we're going to have to figure out when we come back together how to treat each other with kindness and generosity after having isolated ourselves from each other, you know, for the good of the whole. And it seems a tremendous opportunity to, I, history does not look fair, does not, it's not cheerful on this front. But things tend to go back to the way they were before. But I would encourage people to think about friendship, its role in their lives, solitude, its role in their lives, what they have been able to learn out of these experiences and how they can bring that to the world. And if this book can help in that process, I it will have achieved what I hope for. Congratulations and uh, thank you, Fenton Johnson, for joining us on Think Humanities Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.